This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash B-E. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. Pleased for you to join us, and I'm also pleased to be joined by my guest today, who is Caitlin Ulrich. She is a national certified school psychologist and in 2022 was named the Wisconsin School Psychologist of the Year. Caitlin's new book is called Using CBT and Mindfulness to Manage Student Anxiety. It's published by Rutledge. It's available now. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Caitlin, I wanted to start here. So a lot of our listeners are going to be principals, assistant principals, various roles throughout the school setting. And so I think most of them have, it's highly likely that they've heard about cognitive behavioral therapy. They at least have some understanding of what it is, but might not know the ins and outs and also may not know why this is a favored technique for um, managing anxiety and anxiety-based disorders. Can you give us a little bit of an insight into what is CBT, how would you define it, and why it's a really effective strategy in the cases in which you're using it uh, in this book? Yeah, absolutely. So cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, focuses on three main pieces. It looks at thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, and their relationship to each other. So a big part of what I look at within my book and what is especially taught through CBT is looking at your thoughts, the thoughts that are happening, and especially with anyone who has anxiety, the thoughts that can be maladaptive or they can cause somebody to get more stuck. And then evaluating those and thinking, okay, how can we change these thoughts so that I then change my feelings and then also change my behaviors. And how are my behaviors also feeding these thoughts? And how how might my emotions play this kind of cyclical role? So 
emotion or the thought process is the big piece that we're especially focusing on within CBT. Right. And how, how do you bring mindfulness into it? How is that kind of augmentative, right? And, and supplemental to the CBT practice? Yeah. So with, with CBT, you're especially focused on kind of more doing. And that's what I think just also going, circling back to your original question, where you're asking why CBT, that has been especially shown to support with anxiety more, more so than a lot of other options of therapy for students or individuals in general. The mindfulness component adds the piece of being aware of what's happening and also accepting. So not always saying, hey, I'm having this, or I'm having this feeling and I absolutely need to change it, but instead sitting with it and then evaluating, is this that true? Is, mm-hmm. is the CBT piece? And then how can I change it to be more accurate or to be more helpful? But the mindfulness, the mindfulness really brings in that non-judgment, that non-reactivity mm-hmm. and awareness and acceptance. Right. Yeah. I think it's really interesting how they are paired together and they're, they're terms again, that a lot of people have heard about maybe engaged with in one form or another, but they're not always, they don't always go together. And they're things that particularly when we talk about mindfulness, something that a lot of people may learn and kind of endeavor to practice on their own CPT done, you know, in the clinical environment with the therapist and putting them together can really particularly for students and the, the way in which we want them to be thinking and, and critically thinking and aware of their journey and what they're learning and what their objectives are, right? That it can really make the process powerful for them as they go through it. And then we really want them to hold on to those learnings and those insights and those things they're becoming aware of about themselves and the ways that they're changing their behavior and adapting. And what clearly these are. It's an approach that you have used, right? The book lays out a this nine-week program for going through uh, the process with students and helping them to manage their anxiety. What kind of inspired you to, to end up putting this into book form and kind of mapping this out uh, as a program that other schools would be able to follow? Yeah, so I actually, at the very start of the pandemic, when everything was shutting down, I was working to figure out how to pivot supporting students in 4K through 12th grade at home as a school psychologist, while also parenting by myself a three and a Mm one-year-old. My son came in one night as I started to rock my daughter to bed, and he had just had some really big feelings, and he came in more calm, and he said, Mom... It just feels like there's thunder and lightning coming into my brain and I can't get it out. And this notion just hurt my heart, but it also registered with me in so many ways at that moment. And I was amazed with his words and his explanation, but felt like, yep, that's, that's exactly what's happening in my mind. And so I began to write down his words and looked into writing a book for kids I even had a former student um, that I had supported with anxiety and who was very open um, about some of their challenges, look through it. And as the pandemic continued, I met with many kids virtually and anxiety especially rose during these times. And I became frustrated with the lack of programs that were outlined to support anxiety. And I decided to switch 
from a children's book to more of a supportive book a curriculum for helping in the school and giving some generalizations for support at home because I also had lots of parents asking what can I do how can this look and I wasn't finding an easy to access tool so I was creating a lot of my own and then that's um, just kind of how it had come about. Right and we know that there's a variety of in my work i've collaborated directly with hundreds of educators to support their success do you know which of their edtech frustrations comes up time and again the sheer number of tools out there and the difficulty of knowing which ones schools like theirs are using to get results ixl is different not only does it perform the functions of dozens of tools it's currently delivering results for one in four U.S. students, including those in 95 of the top 100 districts. Another major pain point that comes up when a school is excited to implement a new tool only to find out the teachers hate it. Yikes. It helps to know that IXL is loved and trusted by more than one million teachers, saving them time on prep work while enabling them to better support student learning. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments. And independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? If you have a goal to increase achievement for all students, make sure to find out what IXL can do for you. Visit IXL.com forward slash BE for a demo. That's IXL.com forward slash BE. Diagnoses that students or adults may have related to anxiety, whether it's generalized anxiety or a specific phobia, panic disorder, or, but there's also many who may be undiagnosed. Maybe they it's undiagnosable in a case, or maybe it just never has really been assessed and, and determined. But what are what are some of the um, common anxiety, either diagnosed anxiety disorders that you may see in the school environment, or anything that's maybe undiagnosed but seems to come up? Quite so, a bit? yeah, great question. I, I as I think about especially like what is noticed within the schools and at the middle ages, because that's also when we start to see a, a heightened awareness of what, what everyone else is doing and just kind of feelings in general. I would say that there's, there's almost like, I, I've heard the term like fear of missing out FOMO, mm -hmm. what a lot of, a lot of kids call it, where there's almost a little bit of a social anxiety where they're there's students that are worried when they're around others because of saying something incorrectly, but then they're also bothered because they have all of this access to social media and think that everybody's doing something all the time without them. And so then they have this fear of missing out. Other things that I see pretty frequently are students that are worried about speaking in front of others, doing any sort of thing that may make them stand out. I've worked with a lot of teachers to create plans where we are saying, okay, they're not called on unless you give them the signal or they raise their hand because that creates intense anxiety. And sometimes like a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of the ways that 
the, some of the negative ways I'm seeing our kids handle anxiety is, is just retreating and not coming to school. So I think everybody shows it in such a different way. There's yet there's others that will stand outside of the classroom because they're late and then don't want to appear a certain way. And they'd rather stand outside of the classroom than walk in late to the classroom. Or there are others that might get very upset and like might throw something or shout because something was said or done in a different, in a way that they didn't um, appreciate or made them feel triggered in some way. So it can be such a wide range of things, but I'd say, especially what's noticed with um, our young kids is just their awareness of other people's perception and their worry about what other people are thinking. Yeah. And, 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 and certainly the, the book and the, the strategy shared are adaptable and applicable at the elementary level, the secondary level, but they're really most uniquely tailored around the middle grades. And those are the grades where you've done a lot of your work. What comes up particularly in those grades? I mean, those can, those early adolescent years, those years when let's say most kids are least comfortable in their own skin, probably, right? Where there's got to be a lot of prevalence of various manifestations of anxieties around, you know, those unique years in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of it is missing out. There's a lot of anxiety around missing out on things and social media has really enhanced Mm. that. There's also some difficulties with feeling comfortable and talking to their parents about things that are going on. They're, they're reaching this state where Maybe they're retreating more, they're doing things more independently, they're in their room more, they're with friends more, and they're not as with their parents, but they still want that connection, but aren't sure how to bridge that connection when they're feeling stressed. And sometimes that's where I see a divide where the parent is maybe trying their best to come up with strategies for consequences or expectations. And the child is really struggling with those expectations and they're not working together. And sometimes that can cause some of that anxiety as well. Over Feeling overwhelmed with homework, feeling overwhelmed with having lots of involvement too can be something like being involved in all the sports, all the activities after school and trying to figure out how to do it all can be a stressor as well. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there's, if you think about it, at least from the student's perspective, they may totally feel like they're getting mixed messages during these years on when they're uh, supposed to be developing into their adult self and becoming who they're going to be, and yet wanting to be comfortable with who they are, and not really being able to figure out, well, what, what am I supposed to feel? How am I supposed to be? I, there's tremendous pressures on 21st century kids, right? Thinking about from very early ages, competitive higher education, career, sports, everything has a lot attached to it. Um, and yet there's suppo- some of it's supposed to be fun, right? It's supposed to be reinforced. If you had to put a, a number on it, just as far as let's, if we set aside capacity concerns and things that are very real, but 
and just say, what percentage of kids going through school, particularly through middle school, likely would be, you know, appropriately suited to have some type of, you know, anxiety management, right? <laughs> Whether they're diagnosed or not, we know that probably everybody feels some anxiety at some point in time. Sometimes it, it might not really require that much, but others, even if it's undiagnosed, it may be enough to really say, yeah, I mean, it really would be beneficial for at least some type of support or intervention or whatever term you want to put on it. But, you know, what, what number of kids percentage-wise do you think if in the ideal world, we would say, yeah, we would have some way to give them some type of support for their anxiety beyond what they typically might receive? Right. So as I think about like some of the schools that I've worked in and knowing that the number of students that have shown anxiety has significantly increased over the last few years. Mm-hmm. I would I would venture like with an actual like could qualify for anxiety, I would guess at least 20%, probably higher. And my guessing is I think about there's there's a statistic that says one in five people are diagnosed with some sort of mental health related need. And I would guess that number is low because a lot of people don't have an actual diagnosis, like you said, but they show similar behaviors. And I also, from what I see, ADHD and anxiety are fairly common and can be comorbid with other types of mental illness. So at least 20%, I would guess. Worry maybe is more like 80. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and just as we're recording this, I've just recently been a part of a couple of panel discussions for Mental Health Awareness Month and Same Here Schools Month. And one of the things that's talked about through that initiative is five in five, right? Because the statistics will say one in five people are diagnosed with some type of mental illness. And, but yet that's sort of a one, yes that's going to be low because the majority of people, I would say, have never been evaluated, right? And also that whether it's specific, a specific diagnosis or not, almost everybody, I, I'm sure there are some exceptions, but almost everybody has at least some form of whether it's stress, anxiety, depression, something that they deal with sometimes, right? And the point being that everybody would want to be included in those conversations and not feel as though it's the the minority of people who it really applies to. And particularly in these environments, I mean, I've observed, it struck me even recently how um, people that I've heard from, even people who, some who work in the healthcare field, not the mental healthcare field, but people who you would assume would have some sensitivity to this or awareness of it, at least treating anxiety in particular, right, as something that you can just turn on or off, 
<laughs> just say, well, or particularly to kids in schools, uh, saying things along the lines of anxiety is wasted on the young, <laughs> to which my reply is, I think it's wasted on the old. I mean, what do they have to worry about? <laughs> the young people have a lot of things going on. And, and it's not as simple as just saying, I'm just going to choose to not be anxious or, you know, just determine, okay, fine, this is a waste of my time and energy. And even though I wouldn't expect to necessarily hear those sentiments expressed by, say, educators who are around kids all the time, you know, there, there is, of course, are certain things that everybody has blind spots around. It just doesn't know quite as much about or how to react. Are there certain things that you would say to those working in schools, certain signs that they can be aware of when they might see uh, a student dealing with some anxiety that's particularly outside of whatever we might call the quote unquote normal range, outside of the regular day-to-day -day stuff that we will always see and say, hmm, there's this student does seem to be struggling a little more than that. At least I need to be aware of that and maybe observe that so that um, when an opportunity comes, I, I can be a support. So I have, I have two thoughts on that. One is kind of like a measurement system mm -hmm. that I encourage at any age to do. I've done this with kindergartners and I've done it with seniors in high school. And that's just like a feelings check-in saying, how am I doing where it's anonymous? They can put their name on the back of a post-it and put it under like, I need a check-in. I'm really yuck. I'm meh. I, I'm good. I'm feeling great. That kind of thing and do it on their own terms. And that also gets students more comfortable talking about emotions and then also our staff more aware of how to have some of those conversations. Just recognizing like, some of the signs of anxiety, I would say any kind of change in behavior or when you're noticing maybe go, like a, a student going off on their own, maybe they're late more to school, maybe they're missing school, reaching out in some capacity. Even I know so many students that have just cared when it's been an email, like not you're in trouble. These are the 10 different things you missed while you were gone, but instead I really missed you in class today. Just wanted to check in on you. And then again, when they're coming back, being cautious that you're saying, I'm so glad you're here today. And let's like, we can check in on right where you left off because part of the cycle that I see with some students, if they are not coming into school because of feeling anxious, when they come back and they're hearing from either teachers or peers, where were you? Why are you gone all the time? These kinds of questions they don't want to come back anymore. And then that's when they talk, they talked to me about that. But I'd also say even just looking, noticing some of the facial expressions, you can pick up on some kids, they will just show you with their face, the furrowed brows when somebody's saying something next to them, you might notice them not laughing as easily. Some of those subtle signs can just be enough to do a general check in. How are you? Just Wondered, wondered if anything's going on or if you needed to check in, happy to have lunch with you, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and of course, between anxiety and depression and other mental illnesses and challenges, there's, there's comorbidity, number one. And two, there's also, it can be a very fine line between one and the other. Um, does it matter? Let's say if I'm just 
somebody who's an, an, a caring adult in a position to be observant. Um, and I noted, and I'm like, I don't, I, something's going on, but I can't tell what it is. One, does it particularly matter that much if it's one or the other? And, and two, if it does, like, are there signs that might be different or is it more just, I clearly can observe something and let me avail myself of the, the resources that we have here. Yeah. I think whenever you are noticing something's going on, it doesn't matter what it is. Mm -hmm. I see students all the time that don't have a diagnosis, but they're showing problematic behavior. And in that, I mean that they're not doing their normal things. They're not as happy as they once were. And for that, if you, if a staff member feels comfortable just doing like a brief check-in, that's amazing. If they are not at that comfort level though, too, it's also okay to check in with whoever you have for your school helping professional, the school psychologist, the school social worker, the school counselor and saying, hey, this is what's going on. Can you either help me with it or can you coach me on what to say? I have Mm -hmm. teachers doing that with me all the time and I'm always happy to work through that with them. Right, yeah, I I can certainly sense, particularly for the person who's not uh, necessarily even in mental health care, but also the person who's, it's not, necessarily part of their job description, so to speak, who would have a variety of reasons why they may be uncomfortable taking them on. One, again, to the point of what we talked about earlier with statistics, they want to be mindful not to otherize a student that they feel like needs some extra attention, right? Figure out, okay, how do we learn what's going on without it seeming like we're calling out particular kids or, or having them feel as though they're gaining unwanted attention from their peers to what do I say? How do I say it? How do I demonstrate my level of care without seeming like I'm, I don't know, observing something that right. students going to be embarrassed by or in any way make it worse, right? And that's a hard thing to do because of the, the vast majority of students, I believe in any situation, whether it is anything they're challenged by, whether it's it's anxiety or whether it's they're just struggling with their academics, react positively to knowing that people care about them, but yet the adults are going to have their own anxieties around how do I do a good job of this? How, how do I show them what I want to show them and not have it come across not as intended. And that's a whole process, of course, uh, in itself, and yet critically important, right? Uh, And it's not just, I imagine at the individual level, we kind of have at least some sense of what this means to individual students, but do you have thoughts on just even at a school-wide level, like what the difference is between maybe a school that's doing an effective job of evaluating students and making sure that they're getting care and and the resources are in place and one in which that's not really happening. Absolutely. So one of the biggest differences I think that you could notice between a school that is aware of all emotions, including anxiety, is that the message is given to kids and staff and adolescents that all emotions are okay. What's not okay 
is hitting somebody or like screaming at someone, but we value all emotions and we are here to help you through them. In a school where that's not as taught, I think you might see more consequence driven and there's, there might be, there's more of a focus of like that kind of emotion makes me feel uncomfortable. So instead I'm going to try to avoid it or um, I'm going to try to distract you in some way or do something to not talk about that emotion because it feels uncomfortable because it's something other than happy. And so that's where I think, I know at least here in Wisconsin, we've had quite quite a focus on getting more social emotional learning taught in the schools. And our our school has um, been lucky to have a couple of different social emotional learning um, curriculums being taught in the classroom. And we've had peer leaders also modeling some of these programs. And I would just say that the more that we can get the students, the community, and the staff all involved and on the same page with um, how to support our students with these big emotions and recognizing them and knowing it's okay, even if you don't know what to do all the time, that's going to be helpful for everyone involved. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor, MyFlex Learning. Let's talk about flex time in schools. The potential benefits to our students make it totally worth exploring. There's more time for personalized learning, increased choice and agency for students and the increased engagement that comes along with it, dedicated time for intervention, and overall as school leaders, it provides you and your faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be a challenge. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold you back from ensuring students make good use of their time. That's why I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with the seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. If you want to see for yourself, visit myflexlearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash BE. You'll learn all about MyFlex Learning, what it can do for your school, and you'll receive a $500 off offer for your first year. Check it out. And so over the past couple of decades, at least, there, I think data shows that there is an increase in a lot of um, anxiety-based disorders. Part of that might be due to better awareness and evaluation, part of it due to a lot of changes environmentally, right? But specifically in the past few years with the pandemic and all of its effects, there's been even more changes that are observable. Can you, and you referenced that a little bit earlier, but can you speak about that a little more and some of what you've seen and whether the trends or changes in prevalence or, or types of feelings, emotions, behaviors? Yeah. So I think with, with the pandemic, especially especially for some of our adolescents or upper elementary age students, we had something that was very predictable 
like going to school and knowing when we had practice, going to the grocery store, just completely taken away unexpectedly. So that, and it it was such a long period of time and there were resources that were missed out on, right? Like they, we weren't able to get together with people that maybe helped you to be more resilient. You weren't able to do some of the activities that helped with some of the strength building. And that just in and of itself, that everything that I know and accept as this is what I can always depend on could be taken away so quickly, just kind of changes the way that your brain works. And especially I think for not even, I think a lot about our extroverts, the people who really thrive on being around others and how hard that was for some of them. But I also think about some of the introverts and then coming back out of COVID and needing to be around more people again when they were able to be in that comfort spot. That was a challenge too. And I saw saw both ends of that spectrum. And I think that's something that we just need to be aware of as we continue, because we still aren't fully, we, we still don't fully know all of the long-term impacts of COVID on our mental health. Yeah. And I don't have a well-formed theory on this either, but I, there's gotta be something indicative in the, the number of, of students that were kind of permanently lost from the system during the pandemic students who when their schools went virtual stopped showing up and then when they came back in person they never came back and the exact number of that is not really still known but it's known that it certainly happened in in some significant number a number at least to be concerned about and that the students were not they, they didn't all fit into one bucket, right? There was some diversity. There were students who were very likely to be on track to graduate. There, of course, were others who probably didn't feel like that was going to happen anyway, and it wasn't worth it. But I would have to speculate that what we're talking about here relates to at least some of those learners to say, well, this, this learning environment was never suited for me in these ways i never felt comfortable there and now that i sort of have an escape hatch i'm going to take it (laughs) because i'm not going back there and while unfortunately it may be too late in some individual cases to recover that can we take a learning experience from it at least to say look you know yeah we know that a lot of kids may say they don't really want to be here, or whatever. But this is clear. Like there were there were occasions where, as soon as there was an opportunity for them to not be here, they were not here, and they'd not come back. And what could we have done differently and have done better uh, to have not had that happen? And yeah. there's in these areas, especially when you look at when you can kind of control for other variables, right? Academics, behavioral record, et cetera, and say that it's not just that. It's not, it's not the, the students who maybe may have dropped out 
in a normal course of events without a pandemic, even though we, we want to prevent that from happening anyway. But still, like the correlation isn't necessarily going to be right there. Yeah. Did, did, did you, I mean, is that something that, I don't know, <laughs> yeah. that you've thought about or noticed? Absolutely. Being in a more rural school district mm -hmm. the past few years are luckily we've had some supports we can rely on and we did get the community involved when there were cases where it was hard to support some of our students but I also it, back to like you're you're wondering how do we how do we engage students and how do we help them to feel supported when we also have such a like long wait list for help outside of the school system and something that I've found success, success in is not only meeting individually with kids in school, either me, myself, or like staff meeting with them just to get a relationship, but also having groups. And that's where this book, the book that I wrote can be used individually and with groups. And I've seen what I've seen through talking about anxiety with others who are facing similar struggles is that students really feel seen because they are walking around thinking that they are the only one feeling this way because they're not talking about it with anyone else. And then when they hear someone else have similar challenges, they, they can empathize with it and also feel not so abnormal themselves. And by doing this, you also create leaders. I It was just amazing when we came back from the pandemic, I had worked with um, some middle and high school students in a group. I had brought a bunch of students I had been working with individually. And the way that they showed up for each other, I hardly had to say anything. I would guide them but they were doing a lot of the work and helping, helping each other to challenge the thinking and to be okay with all of the emotions that they have thinking about like positive friendships and coming. And then we came up with coping strategies together. So it was, it was just such a great format and such a good group to get to know each other too. Yeah. So in the, in the book, so we referenced earlier, it's a nine week program um, can you at a high level just give us an understanding of kind of when a, a counselor or psychologist would work with a student through this nine week kind of splitting it up maybe into beginning, middle, end, right? What the focuses kind of are of those sessions and the trajectory of where we're starting and getting to and then concluding what that sort of looks like? Yeah. So the first few weeks are really getting to know each other, know the other members in the group, or if it's one-on-one, -on -one, just getting the student used to you. And then also becoming aware of different kinds of emotions and naming them when they happen. This can be done just by like different kinds of games that you can add emotions with. Again, that kind of strategy can be used in the classroom and I have used it in the classroom before. And then also dropping down to the body, because a lot of times when we're talking about anxiety, we get so stuck in our head and our thoughts. And what, what we do at, like by week three is we're checking in with, okay, where do I feel this in my body? Do I have like, it does my tummy hurt because I, or my stomach hurts because I am feeling anxious about something and what can I do to help that feel better? We then move into 
thinking about how our thoughts are impacting impacting us and thinking about how we can change our thoughts by also recognizing what is within my control and what is outside of my control and having the willingness to kind of let go of some of those things that are outside of our control. And then there's a focus on like, finally, it's more coping strategies. And we kind of lay out different, like I focus on creativity, movement, breath work, as well as, sorry, forgetting. We can cut out this silence. (laughs) As well as relationships. So with each of those, I ask students to get familiar with the different kinds of strategies that they're comfortable trying. We also try a few of them while we're together and then they rate what they would be most likely to use. And then there's for throughout the whole book, there's also a rating scale so that we're assessing whether what we're doing is impacting any kind of change. And there are specific scripts to share with the teachers as well as guardians, because I've had quite a few parents reach out, family members reach out wanting to know strategies as well as teachers. And that's been, that's been helpful along with some of the, there's additional resources at the end that can just be used in the classroom as needed and don't have to be part of the curriculum either. Right. And you reference relationships there, which are, that is not always part of discussions about CBT with students doesn't always come into those programs. Can you talk about that a little bit more and why that's an important part of the program that you've laid out? Yeah, so I see relationships as being important because within the relationships, there's a checking in with somebody who maybe can help you when you're getting stuck with some of those more negative automatic thoughts. There's also the possibility of that person being kind of a strengths builder. So if you are, again, getting kind of stuck in more negative thinking, helping you to recognize, okay, what are my options here and what is within my control and what kind of strengths do I already have within myself and knowing that you can get that from them. I have other students who honestly just appreciate being next to someone. They don't always want to talk, but it's helpful for them to be within close proximity. And I think having them recognize that within themselves, that just being by somebody can help them to feel calm, can also just be a a great coping strategy for them. Yeah. And then I believe within the sessions, I believe they're laid out 30 minute sessions, but if you could maybe specify a little bit within those sessions and a little bit about the structure, right? There's a focus, there's learning targets, and that's a piece that I think will make a lot of sense, of course, to our educator listeners and how that works. And then, you know, how you're, of course, checking in on progress and sharing your findings. Can you just give us a little bit of what happens within those sessions and how they're structured? And I think they'll also give some great insight into how it aligns to the other learning and discovery that students are doing. Yeah. So throughout, throughout each of the sessions, there is, I try to have it kind of a grab and go type of strategy because I know how busy the days can be. And I know there's not always time for prep work. So there are like specific words that can be said that are highlighted in blue. If that is how the person, anybody would choose to utilize it, but it goes through, there's a focus, there are specific learning targets. um, It identifies the materials needed 
You then have the introduction and assessment because each week the students are taking an assessment. There's a main lesson focus. And then after the main lesson, there is a wrap up and just kind of summarizing what has been learned. And then there is a chunk of information just specifically for the clinician. If they have further questions and it's like, hey, this student didn't exactly meet the expectations of what we were hoping to gain at this time. And some just kind of guides for what to do if there are problems along, along the road within the weekly session. And then there's finally a summary to share with the teacher as well as the family member. Yeah. So when you have your learnings from these sessions, what does that process look like of sharing those with teachers and parents or guardians, and then engaging those parties in the process and positioning them to be able to also provide support? Yeah. So really when we're teaching, when I'm teaching these skills and I'm working with a student only like once or twice a week, I'm not seeing them nearly as much as their family or their teacher are. So if they are able to, if the student that we're working with is able to hear another person that they look up to and are around a lot using these same the same language and checking in with them or modeling a lot of what those that generalization does is asks parents to model like hey i was feeling really frustrated because this car just cut me off i'm going to do xyz so that they can see that it's okay for them to talk about it and they can see what kinds of coping strategies their parent is using as well. And then it can make it feel more natural and normal to talk about these feelings together. Right. And I mean, that's, that's a really important piece of it, of course, and uh, to making, I think the progress durable, sustainable, achievable right? <laughs> to convey to the other adults who are spending a lot of time uh, with these kids that one, they have an important role to play in the process, but also giving them really actionable strategies and guidance on how they can do that, that they can take away on the front end. Are there, is there advice you have for um, navigating that for the, basically recruiting those folks into the process, right, who may have never been part of something like this before and may not necessarily know how they fit in or may think they don't, to say, not only am I, of course, going to give you useful guidance on what you can do, but I also need to make sure you understand why it's important for you to be a part of this. Absolutely. So there's actually a parent letter or guardian letter, as well as a teacher letter at the front. And there's an assessment asked for from the pair, from the guardian, as well as the teacher. So that right away, they are part of the process. And I always suggest reaching out to the, a family member and talking with them about why you think this would be helpful and what it's going to look like and explaining to them that I will be sharing information with you because this is 
it's not going to be able to be generalized with just me once a week. And because you're the most important person in their life, I really think that you also reiterating this information is going to be helpful. And I tend to find that a lot of parents will ask me, what can I do? Can you share more resources? Can I have information? And now with using this curriculum, rather than sending a lot of books and kind of piecemeal strategies, I say, you know what, I am going to be guiding you each week along this process with us. If you can just kind of follow along and then after we're done, if you have further questions or want more strategies, let's, let's talk more then. And I find that they really want to be involved. Yeah. Caitlin, do you have for an educator or a parent or somebody who wants to learn a little bit more here about the background, whether it's about CBT itself or mindfulness or anxiety, right? Do you have any book you would recommend or another resource that they could check out that's, you know, not written for clinicians, but something that folks who want to get a little more background, right? Kind of understand what they're, what they're dealing with and learn a little bit more might want to check out. Yeah. So a big strategy that I feel like I pulled from was mirroring emotions. I I believe there are older version, like for older kids, there's a version of this, but the happiest toddler on the block by Harvey Karp, that is, that's a book that I feel like really talks about the importance of being able to mirror what is happening and then help in meeting your child wherever they are at. Another book that is more geared toward any age is The Child Whisperer. And what I appreciate about that book for both educators and families is that it doesn't fall so much into the diagnosis world. Instead, it talks about like personality types and talking about four different personality types and how you can support your child or student with that type by meeting them again where they're at. So it not, I guess they're not exactly getting at CBT and mindfulness. For mindfulness that John Kabat-Zinn wrote, Full Catastrophe Living, it's a big read, but an amazing read. For CBT, honestly, a lot of times some different kinds of short searches through some articles might be mm-hmm. um, are more of what I what my go-to is for that. Excellent. Listeners, the book is called, again, Using CBT and Mindfulness to Manage Student Anxiety. It's available from Rutledge. We'll put the link below in the show notes. Caitlin, any final points you'd like to make for our listeners? I, I guess I would just say just reminding our students and kids that all emotions are okay is so important. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on The Authority. Listeners, please do subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews like this one, or check out all of our podcasts at bepodcastnetwork.com or bepodcast.network to learn about all of our shows there. Caitlin, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. This has been The Authority Podcast, hosted by Ross Romano. Edited by Gage Sanderson. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash B-E.
to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E.